Now let's uh, direct our attention to the Word of God, to the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, and the 18th verse. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are this Advent season, each Sunday that goes by, taking a look at a different Christmas hymn or Christmas carol, and we sing it as we conclude our service. Today's carol is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, number 194, and your hymnal will be singing in a little while. We look at the scripture text behind the hymn, a little bit about the hymn and its authorship, and then the message of the hymn. In the first place, a little bit about the scripture that is behind it. This, of course, is one of many nativity passages that are read each Advent season. We come to Christmas programs and we read the passage like we did last week from Luke about the shepherds. And here we have the appearance of the angel to Joseph to explain to Joseph what is taking place in the womb of his fiancée and how the Lord is doing his work. What is happening here is God is describing the physical circumstances of a virgin birth. That is a young woman of marriageable age who now has conceived and is soon to bring forth, as we saw last week, a baby who is a son, who will be a savior. And so the anxieties and the misgivings are whirling around in Joseph's mind, as you can certainly imagine. Uh, you can imagine what the rumor on the street would be when it's discovered that Mary is pregnant and unmarried, and Joseph is the intended one, but yet they have not known each other in that way. And by the way, that followed Jesus all the days of his life. He was always known as an illegitimate son. And yet, here by the revelation of the angel, we find that what's going on is the Holy Spirit of God is hovering over her and causing, like he did in creation when he hovered over the creation and the Word and the Spirit of God created. Here we have a creative activity taking place that is unique and indescribable and real and physical 
amounting to molecules and cells, but yet at the same time having to do that which is infinite and divine. We have the conception of the God-man. And soon there'll be the birth of the babe that we spoke of last week, the babe of Bethlehem, the baby Jesus. Call his name Jesus, Joshua. That's the Old Testament word for Savior, for he'll save his people from their sins. But then it's interesting that the essence of this fulfillment of what's happening is described by Matthew as fulfilling a passage in the Old Testament where the prophecy is given that a virgin, a Parthenos, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and this son will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is happening here, according to Matthew, is that there is the visitation of God. God is going to visit his people. He's going to come to his people. All through the Old Testament, we have time and again when God visited his people and came to them in redemption and came to them in judgment and came to them time and again to deal with them, to save them and to move them about and to do all sorts of things to his people all through the 2,000 year history of God's people from Abraham to Christ. This will be a visitation. God will come near. Literally, that's what that word is. It means to come near, to draw nigh. God will come near to his people again to effect something that is absolutely salvific and miraculous and wonderful to behold and final in a way. This is God's movement toward his people to redeem his people, to save his people, to rescue his people, deliver them from all of their troubles that they've known. Now, just parenthetically, if you do a careful study of Matthew, you'll notice that one of the things that Matthew does is he quotes the prophecies all the time. And he quotes Isaiah about as frequently as any. And all through Matthew, you'll find this theme, God with us. Let me give you a couple of examples. Right in the middle of the gospel of Matthew, you'll find that the Lord is dealing with a very difficult situation in the congregation of church discipline, of how to handle a brother who's in sin and how you're to deal with them. And remember, the Lord says, where two or three are gathered together. That's not describing an extremely small worship service. That's not describing a small group meeting. That's describing a court. Two or three witnesses were required in a court to render a judgment and a verdict upon the soul of some brother. And what did God say at that point? Christ say at that point, he said, I will be in your midst. I'll be with you. The Lord will not only be with them in times of great worship and wonder, but he'll be in with them in this most difficult hour of the church when it's time to discipline and to restore or excommunicate, as the case may be, a brother, one who claims to be a brother. Difficult times. And then you just go straight to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus is giving that great commission, what did he say to them as his final words? Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. So this notion that God is with us is exactly what's happening here. God is coming to visit his people 
by a son and in Christ Jesus himself. Now, as you might suspect, there's an Old Testament background for this. And it goes, this particular quotation is taken from one of the most critical episodes in the life of ancient Israel. In the 8th century, the late 8th century B.C., 700 plus years before Christ, God's people were in one of the worst crises that they'd ever been in. Let me describe it to you historically like this. You remember the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split following the reign of King Solomon. And so there were two kingdoms, a huge, large, dominant northern kingdom with the principal tribe being the tribe of Ephraim, but having basically the ten tribes of Israel with a capital in Samaria and with a series of dynasties, none of them from David. They were an apostate kingdom. They were heavy into idolatry. They were very, very prosperous. Then there was the southern kingdom that had clung to the the dynasty of David and it always had an heir of David, a descendant of David on the throne. And this was made up of one good strong tribe, the tribe of Judah, and a couple of other tribes and partial tribes that, that confederated with them, the tribe of Benjamin and some of Simeon, had, had, had thrown their fortunes in with the southern kingdom of Judah. And these two kingdoms separated themselves and were sometimes allies and sometimes enemies and were always differentiated over the next 200 and plus years of Israel's history and constantly coming into um, conflict. What had happened was there a threat had arisen from the north. It was the Assyrian Empire with its capital in Nineveh, with its great fierce generals and its, its terrorizing army that would move into places and conquer and do unspeakable acts of terror and horror and subjugate peoples and haul peoples off and were extremely, extremely violent and ruthless in every way. And they were the terror of the Mideast at that time. And so to fight them off, Syria, headquartered in Damascus under the reign of King Reason, tried to put together a confederation of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom with Syria, where those three smaller states could resist the Assyrian advances. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, had refused to confederate with these two pagan and godless kings. He had followed in the footsteps of Uzziah, his ancestor, and Jotham, godly kings in Israel. And King Ahaz was listening always to the voice of the prophets and to the voice of God and was trying to do the right thing. The king of the northern kingdom, Pekah, the king of Syria, reasoned, confederated together, conspired together to invade Judah, the small southern kingdom, in retaliation for their refusal to go along with them. 
So listen to a little bit of the background. In the days of Ahaz, the king of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, reason the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but it could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz, that's the king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind terrorized them, scared them to death, put them into complete state of fear. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint in other words, God comes to speak by the prophet Isaiah to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and tells him, I know these are the most terrorizing times in your nation's history. Well, if I was a preacher, I'd stop and preach right there. I know these are the most terrorizing times in your nation's history, but do not be afraid. Trust in me, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Reza, of Syria, and, the, and in other words, the Lord had a different perspective on these terrorists than Ahaz did. He didn't see them as all that big of a threat. In fact, he saw them as a couple of stumps out in the pasture that were just about burned out. And all they had left was a few little flickering, smoldering embers. And before long, they would be gone. In fact, the prophecy comes along later in verse 8 says, Within 65 years, Ephraim would be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. God knew the destiny. God knew the future. He knew what was going to happen to the northern kingdom. In fact, God was allowing that to happen as punishment for their multi-generational idolatry because of their following false gods, because of their worshiping false gods, because of their dependence upon a, a, a pagan economy, violating biblical principles of economics right and left, and because of their child sacrifice, murdering babies by the thousands. God knew what he was doing, but he didn't want his people the southern kingdom, David's house, Ahaz and Isaiah and the others to be afraid because he was going to protect them. They've said, let's go up against Judah and terrify it. Isn't that an interesting word? Terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves. And let's set up a king in the midst of it. But thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. God has a different perspective on this than we do. And that Ahaz had. And then there is the text of the sermon. The end of verse 9 in chapter 7 of Isaiah, it says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. 
there's a sense in which that just almost seems out of place in the Old Testament. That sounds like something Paul would be preaching to us in Romans. Or that the writer of Hebrews would be exclaiming to God's people, faith, being firm in faith. If you're not firm in faith, you are not firm at all. And God says to Ahaz, through the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to preserve Judah, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, the house of David. I'm going to protect, I'm going to keep, I'm going to save, I'm going to deliver. Assyria will not conquer them. They'll conquer the northern kingdom, and they certainly did. They'll conquer Syria. They certainly did. They'll conquer all the nations round about, but they won't come nigh thee. It won't be near you. You will be preserved. And in order to reinforce what he said, Isaiah said to King Ahaz, Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. Put out a fleece. Ask God to give you a sign that he is in charge, that he is in control, that faith in him is the ultimate thing. <laughs> Poor old Ahaz couldn't do it. <laughs> <coughs> excuse me, he said, I will, I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not ask. Bless his heart. He had good theology. He knew he wasn't supposed to tempt God, even though the prophet had encouraged him to. And then a remarkable thing. The Lord himself says, I will give you a sign. You don't have to ask. I'm going to give you a sign. And here it is. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. What was God's answer to Ahaz's predicament in an hour of terror 700 plus years before the birth of Christ? What was God's solution? What was his answer to worldwide terrorism? It was the baby in Bethlehem. It was Christ. It was God moving to be with his people in whatever circumstances they're in and wherever they are. It's God coming in a real way, in a literal way, in a personal way. It's God moving into company with his people. And I'd like to proclaim today that that is God's solution all the time. That was God's solution 2,700 years ago to the terrorism in the Middle East of that day. And that's God's solution to the terrorism of today. We as God's people have to look to God Almighty, to our Savior, to Christ, whatever befall. Not to armies, not to armaments, not to all of these things, but to know that God is on our side. God loves us. God cares for us. We are his. We belong to him. And if we don't have faith and it's not firm, then we have nothing firm at all. There's no place to stand in days like this if there is not solidity, if there's not a foundation under our feet that is Christ in Christ alone. That's the only hope we have. We're in Christ. That's God's solution 
That's God, how, how God deals with it. Uh, two more times in this seventh, and then again in the eighth chapter of Isaiah, the word Emmanuel. And I like this 10th verse, Isaiah 8, 10. God speaks to these enemies of his people and says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. God is with us. That's what we have. That's all we have. That's all we need. God with us. Now when we sing this hymn, Come O Come Emmanuel, we're doing something that's kind of interesting. This is a revival brought about by John Mason Neal, one of the men of the Oxford movement in England, the Church of England in the mid-19th century. A group of men who looked back under, basically under John Henry Newman, uh, they looked back to the Roman church, the medieval church, and tried to find things there, and they found a lot that they could bring forward into the Reformed and the Protestant church to revive in terms of orthodoxy, in terms of devotion and worship. And one of the things that they brought back and revived were some of the medieval hymns. And this is one of them. There were a series of seven hymns that were sung in the, in the medieval church between, uh, for, for Vesper services between the 17th of December and Christmas Eve, the 24th of December. There were seven hymns that were sung. They're called the, the, the seven great antiphons or sometimes called the seven great O's. And these hymns were coming from the 12th century, O Sepetisha, which means wise men or wise man, O Adonai, which means O Lord of might, O Radix Jesse, root of Jesse, O Clavis David, or David, the key of David, O Arians, the morning star, the eastern star, O Rex, the king, and then the seventh one was O Emmanuel, God with us. And these seven hymns were reworked and put into uh, this one hymn. And five of these seven hymns were included as stanzas in the hymn in, that, that we sing. And it talks about all of the different ones. When it talks about uh, our um, verse number one has the exile theme, talking about Emmanuel, O come Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 2 has the theme of the tribes and the giving of the law. It's the O Adonai, the Lord God Almighty. Stanza 3 speaks of the rod of Jesse, or the radix. And of course, the, the rod, the little shoot, the little stem that comes up out of the dead stump of Jesse is David. And of course, Christ is that branch, that shoot of David. That's pointed out in uh, Isaiah 11. In fact, the word for shoot in the Hebrew is the word Natsar. Jesus was from Nazareth. And even though he wasn't born there, he grew up there. He's the branch of David. 
And then the, first, the fourth stanza speaks of the O Ariane, so the day spring, the morning star, the light, the sun. And then the fifth stanza speaks of the um, key of David, the clavis of David. And here we have kind of an interesting revelation. If you study the imagery of key in the scripture, it is the key that unlocks heaven and hell. It is the final authority, the final, who holds the key to whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell? The key to the bottomless pit in the book of Revelation. The keys to the kingdom spoken of in the gospels. Who holds the key? These, these hymns, even though they are medieval and Catholic, and interestingly enough, the revised words that we sing are words by William Sloan Coffin, who was one of the, the uh, great liberals of the American church in the early 20th century. So even though there are Catholics and liberals and others involved in the authorship of this hymn, we have a focus upon Christ in these five stanzas. And as we sing them, let that imagery and that poetry fill your heart. O come Emmanuel is just one stanza. It's O come King, O come wise man, O come root of Jesse, key of David, morning star, and ultimately the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. <laughs> 